Hello everyone and welcome to the June 2nd edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Eric Law and I'm an attorney with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that privileges apply to WCAB cases and limit discovery. Here is what happened in the case of Regents of the University of California versus WCAB. Shirley Lappy sustained an injury in 2003 at the University of California at Irvine and filed a claim for benefits. In 2007, she set the deposition of the Sedgwick claims examiner assigned to her case and sought all unprivileged documents pertaining to her case in the claims file. The university moved to quash the deposition, but the WCJ ordered the claims examiner to make himself available for deposition and to produce all non-privileged portions of the claim file. At the deposition, the claims examiner produced the claims file, which included computer notes identified as notepad detail. However, he did not produce the notes after the university retained counsel. Lappy made a further demand for the, missing, for the missing documents, which the university refused to produce on the basis of privilege. The WCJ ordered the university to file a copy of computer notepad detail with the WCJ for an in-camera review. The discovery dispute was ultimately removed to the WCAB for resolution. The WCAB said that if the dispute docu documents do not refer to an attorney's communication, they may not be protected by the attorney-client privilege. Moreover, if a note with an action plan does not refer to an attorney's impressions, it is difficult to see how the action plan would fall within the work product doctrine. However, the WCAB explained that it was not clear from the record whether the notes actually summarize or refer to, commu to attorney communications. Thus, the WCAB concluded that the WCJ should appoint a special master to conduct an in-camera review of the documents and produce a report to the WCJ. But the Court of Appeal reversed. The question was, does the attorney-client privilege, the absolute work product doctrine and evidence code section 915 apply to workers' compensation proceedings and can the WCAB order an in-camera review of documents in order to determine whether the privileges apply? The answer to those questions are yes, the privileges do apply and therefore no, it cannot order an in-camera review. Section 915 in the Evidence Code governs privileges. It says that the presiding officer may not require disclosure of information claimed to be privileged in order to rule on the claim of privilege with some exceptions. Section 915 would have prohibited the type of document review ordered by the WCAB if this dispute had arisen in the context of an ordinary civil case. But Labor Code Section 5708 specifies that the WCAB shall not be bound by the common law or statutory rules of evidence and procedure. However, 
when it comes to privileged information, Division 8 of the Evidence Code trumps this provision of the Labor Code. Division 8 expressly applies to any action, whether conducted by a court, administrative agency, hearing officer, arbitrator, legislative body, or any other person authorized by law in which testimony can be compelled. Evidence Code Section 910 explicitly overrides any other statute which might otherwise be viewed as limiting application of the rules of evidence. The Court of Appeal concluded that it was clear that the WCAB remains bound by the statutory requirements for dealing with privilege. As a consequence, this WCAB erred in this case when it ordered an in-camera review of the university's allegedly privileged documents by a special master. Lowe's Home Centers agreed to settle a class action brought by its home improvement contractors who alleged that they were misclassified as independent contractors instead of employees. The maximum settlement amount is $6.5 million plus attorney's fees. The plaintiffs are home improvement contractors who are individuals or businesses. They allege that Lowe's Home Centers offered its customers the opportunity to hire contractors to install products and services purchased from Lowe's. The complaint alleged that Lowe's had the right to control all aspects of installation jobs. They also required that the installers identify themselves as installers for Lowe's or, quote, I work for Lowe's, wear Lowe's hats and shirts at work sites, use signs stating Lowe's installation, attend training by Lowe's, and comply with Lowe's production requirements, close quote. Lowe's set the fees to be earned by each home improvement contractor, imposed a non-compete covenant on installers, and marketed the contractor's services on its website. The installers alleged that Lowe's failed to provide them with an array of benefits that were available to employees. The installers alleged that they were entitled to such benefits under a California labor code, which establishes a rebuttable presumption of employment. Lowe's denied the allegations and maintains that the installers are independent contractors. After numerous motions and extensive discovery, including the exchange of thousands of, page of pages of documents and depositions, the parties settled their disputes. The maximum amount recoverable would have been approximately $33 million. Aggressive plaintiff attorneys have tried for years to up the ante in workers' compensation claims, including attempts at filing RICO cases against employers carriers and claims professionals. Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, commonly referred to as RICO, is a federal law that provides extended criminal penalties and a civil cause of action for acts performed as part of an ongoing criminal organization. But a new appellate case in the Sixth Circuit rules out a RICO case based upon a workers' compensation claim, at least in the Sixth Circuit which is Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, and Tennessee. Jay Brown claimed that he injured his shoulder while working for Ajax Paving and sought workers' compensation in Michigan. 
Ajax introduced medical testimony suggesting that the injury occurred outside of work. While the case remained pending before the Michigan Administrative Agency, Brown and Ajax settled. Brown, however, thought that Ajax had introduced false medical testimony and that it had done the same to other employees and sued Ajax and its insurers, claims administrators, and the doctor under RICO. The district court dismissed the case and the Sixth Circuit affirmed the dismissal. It reasoned that under the act, Brown must show that illegal racketeering activities have injured him in his business or property according to the wording of the statute. The Sixth Circuit has held that loss or diminution of benefits the plaintiff expects to receive under workers' compensation scheme does not constitute an injury to the business or property under RICO. The Sixth Circuit pointed out that in the case of Jackson versus Sedgwick Claims Management Services, it had rejected a lawsuit challenging a scheme to introduce false testimony at workers' compensation hearings. In the Sedgwick case, it held that loss or diminution of benefits the plaintiff expects to receive under workers' compensation scheme does not constitute an injury to business or property under RICO. The circuit court gave two key reasons for its holding. One was that workers' compensation compensated for personal injury while RICO, with its spotlight on business or property, did not cover losses that flowed from personal injuries. Second, it, reason, it reasoned a contrary rule would allow RICO to police fraud in the workers' compensation system, planting the national banner on land traditionally patrolled by the states. In the circuit court's opinion, RICO did not speak with enough clarity to authorize such an intrusion. The circuit court added that Jackson applied not only disputes between employer-employee, it applied not only to disputes between employer-employee, but also to an employee's claims against insurers, claims administrators, and doctors, all of the defendants. The Sixth Circuit was the first federal appellate court to rule on the issue, but similar cases are pending across the country. A case was filed recently against York Risk Services Group in Arizona on behalf of injured firefighters. The case is Laurie Miller versus York Risk Services Group. In the Arizona case, the federal judge denied workers' requests to dismiss the employees' claims last December. The judge found that the employees possess a property right in their workers' compensation benefits under Arizona law, which allows them to have a property interest under RICO law. This was the opposite of the finding in Brown. Arizona is in the, in the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, as is California, and the Ninth Circuit is not bound by cases in the Sixth Circuit. Nonetheless, the opinion in Brown will be persuasive, if not controlling law. Should the Ninth Circuit differ when the York case ultimately reaches the appellate tribunals, it would be an invitation for the U.S. Supreme Court to weigh in 
perhaps resolving the issue of the application of RICO to workers' compensation cases nationwide. But an adverse ruling at the Ninth Circuit would open the floodgates for RICO litigation in California unless the U.S. Supreme Court intervened. The Ninth Circuit is generally viewed as the most liberal venue in the nation. Thus, the New York, the York case needs to be carefully followed. And now our fraud report. 60-year-old Jackie Sebastian from San Jacinto was arrested by Department of Insurance detectives. Postal clerk faces, the postal clerk faces felony insurance fraud and grand theft charges for submitting 249 false workers' compensation claims for mileage reimbursements. She filed claims for about $65,000 for transportation costs associated with mileage to and from her medical appointments. Sebastian received nearly $14,000 for mileage reimbursement, which according to department detectives was not associated to any legitimate medical or pharmacy visits. If convicted, she faces a maximum of five years in jail, a possible fine, and full restitution. A criminal investigation known as Operation Nail Polish uncovered a $7 million chiropractic fraud. The offer of a free mani-pedi and massage turned out to be too good to be true. The customers had to turn a blind eye when the spa billed their insurance companies for chiropractic services instead. Thus, the owners and employees of San Jose Cairo were actually committing what prosecutors say is the largest medical fraud case in Santa Clara County history. This scheme ranked in, raked in $7 million in about 17 months. A prosecutor stated that non-therapeutic massages, facials, manicures, and pedicures are great, but they are not medical treatments. And portraying them as medical treatments is to get insurance reimbursement is a crime. Authorities arrested San Jose Cairo's two owners and two employees. Each has been charged with 11 counts of felony health care insurance fraud and faces up to 24 years in jail. Authorities began an investigation of San Jose Cairo at the end of 2012 based upon a tip. An investigator visited the spa eight times and received eight free manicures and pedicures. Her insurance company was billed $2,000 or $250 per visit, at least five times as much as nail care typically costs even when it is legitimately billed. The prosecutor said it's unclear whether customers knew of the fraudulent building, billing, though it seems likely many did. About 90% of the spa's business was fraudulently billed, even though some insurance companies cover massages. Now, in medical news, a surge in prescription drug abuse among older Americans has been accompanied by a large increase in urine and blood tests nationwide. The tests generate millions of dollars for providers. Medicare, the government insurance system, for the disabled and people 65 years and older is footing the bill. 
A review of Medicare data released last month found, as an example, that three Connecticut doctors billed Medicare for 145 patients and their drug test. Medicare administrators paid the doctors almost one and a half million dollars. Each of the doctors requested only the most expensive and a comprehensive drug test for as much as $94 rather than the $19 simpler test. The doctors claimed this was done to improve the accuracy of the results, but the acting president of the American Society of Addiction Medicine felt those numbers were ridiculously high. He said that there is no medical indication that would require such frequency of testing. He could not come up with a scenario to justify the tests. Medicare paid medical providers roughly $460 million in 2012 for 16 million tests to, de to detect everything from prescription narcotics to heroin. Urine and blood tests are potential areas of fraud and abuse because guidelines for drug testing are vague, leaving the frequency of testing to the discretion of the provider. However, there is often a legitimate need for drug tests to determine whether an addict has relapsed or ensure that patients prescribed painkillers are taking them rather than selling them. In 2011, the average number of older Americans misusing or dependent on prescription pain relievers grew to about 340,000, thus was up from 132,000 a decade earlier. Some insurers say that they are shocked by the cost of new drugs. The rapid adoption of a new $84,000 hepatitis C treatment is the latest example. Health insurers are trying to make sure they aren't blindsided by other drugs being developed and are looking for ways to limit their use from the day they are launched. 30,000 people have received hepatitis drug Sovaldi so far, and sales hit a record-breaking $2.3 billion within a few months. The treatment, typically 84 pills taken over 12 weeks, completely cures the disease in more than 90% of patients. As many as 3.2 million Americans are infected by hepatitis C, and the cost of giving most of them Sovaldi would surpass $200 billion. Some insurers have already put conditions on who can get the drug, and states, including California and Texas, have slowed or put treatment on hold while they study what to do. Insurers warned that these unforeseen costs will cut 2014 earnings and require rate hikes. By law, insurers cannot deny access to new drugs if they represent a real improvement for patients. When comparable competitors or a genetic, generic version is on the market about a decade later, insurers have room to steer patients away from the new drugs. But insurers have not faced such a highly effective drug aimed at a widespread disease that is so expensive and so quickly adopted. The previous record for a drug reaching blockbuster status was set in 2011 when hepatitis C therapy in Civec raked in more than $1 billion 
in one year. So Valdi has sold more than this so far in a quarter of the time. As a result, insurance are take, insurers are taking a harder look, line on which patients should get Sovaldi based on the drug's clinical data. The co-president of Reimbursement Intelligence said that Sovaldi is game-changing for insurers' thinking. In a sign of how serious the injury has be industry has become, the largest insurer lobby group last week took the manufacturer to task at a public conference. The company, however, argues that Sovaldi's price is worth it since it will replace even costlier spending on hospital visits and treatments for cirrhosis or liver failure. U.S. drug spending reached a record $329 billion in 2013, driven by a double-digit increase in prices for new cancer, HIV, and hepatitis C therapies. More scrutiny of new pricing is likely ahead as the country comes to terms with how it should pay for expensive drugs. The next big price battle centers on a new class of cholesterol drugs known as PCSK9 inhibitors. The PCSK9 therapies are expected to cost thousands of dollars a year, far above the price of statins sold as generics. And in other news, the state compensation insurance fund announced it has appointed Vernon Steiner as president and CEO. Steiner joins the state fund from Zenith Insurance Company. At Zenith, he worked as senior vice president of claims, where he was responsible for Zenith's national claims operation. He has 24 years of industry experience, most of which has been focused on workers' compensation and casualty business operations. Prior to joining Zenith, he held several leadership positions at CNA Financial and prior to that was with AIG for eight years. Steiner has served on the Workers' Compensation Research Institute's advisory board since 2009 and as a member of the California Workers' Compensation Institute's board of directors since 2010. He has recently, or was recently, elected chairman of the CWCI Board of Directors. He holds a BA degree in philosophy from US UCLA. His annual salary will be $450,000 with an annual bonus equivalent to 30% of his salary and California State Civil Service benefits. Additionally, he will receive a one-time recruitment and retention bonus of $270,000. He enters the stage at a pivotal moment for the fund. The agency is in the midst of a massive reorganization effort that started in 2010 with layoffs and office closures that displaced employees. This year, the state fund is celebrating 100 years of providing California businesses with their workers' compensation insurance between 1914 and 2014. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, 
or Android device by searching for the Work Comp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I am Eric Law, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And drop by again next week for more news.